Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on November 15th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Myth and organism are formed by discrete algebra units, which evolve with time. Myth and organism are formed by discrete heritable units, which evolve over time. That's Julian Dehuy. He is a doctoral candidate in history at Pantheon Sorbonne University in Paris, and he uses evolutionary theory and computer modeling in the comparative analysis of myths and folktales. It's very interesting stuff, and he has an article about it in the December issue of Scientific American. Julien Dehuy was kind enough to provide about 20 minutes worth of audio. Um, unfortunately, my ear is not good enough to catch everything that he was saying. So what I did was go through the audio and pick out a few sections that I thought were clear enough for my American ear to follow. And uh, I'll try to fill in some of the rest with the idea here. But the basic idea that he explicates in the article is that we can track the evolution of myths and folktales with the same techniques that we use to establish evolutionary relationships and evolutionary history. And it's very interesting stuff. Uh, imagine a giant game of telephone. Now, we probably all played telephone in school when we were kids, and maybe there were 20 people and you start at one end, and they whisper in every, each other's ear, and it comes out the other end, and you see what happened to it. Imagine that game played over thousands or even tens of thousands of years with thousands or even millions of people. And the striking thing, to me, is just how much of the original story actually is maintained after all those iterations. Myth and organism change over time. This is the most important thing. Myth and organism are formed by discrete algebra units, which evolve with time. The more two species or two myths diverge, geographically and temporally, the more distant the genetic relationship is. If you agree with these two proposals, you can use phylogenetic tools to study myths and folktales. So let me just tell you very briefly uh, how he begins the article. He talks about uh, the Greek version of a familiar myth. It starts with Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. And Artemis demands that Callisto and her other handmaidens take a vow of chastity. Zeus tricks Callisto into giving up her virginity, and she gives birth to a son named Arcus. Now, Zeus's jealous wife, Hera, turns Callisto into a bear, banishes her to the mountains. Meanwhile, Arcus grows up to become a hunter, and one day happens on a bear that greets him with outstretched arms. Now, he doesn't recognize that this bear is his mother, so he takes aim with his spear. But just in the nick of time, Zeus comes to the rescue, and then, because he's Zeus and he does things like this, he transforms Callisto into the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear, and places Arcus nearby as Ursa Minor, the little bear. So that's from ancient Greece. Meanwhile, in the Iroquois culture of the northeastern United States, they have this story. Three hunters pursue a bear. The blood of the wounded animal colors the leaves of the autumnal forest. The bear then climbs a mountain, leaps into the sky. The hunters and the animal become the constellation Ursa Major. 
Then again, among the Chuchki, a Siberian people, the constellation Orion is a hunter who pursues a reindeer, Cassiopeia. Meanwhile, in the Finno-Ugric tribes of Siberia, the pursued animal is an elk and takes the form of Ursa Major. And uh, Dewey continues, the animals in the constellations may differ, but the basic structure of the story is pretty much the same. These sagas all belong to a family of myths known as the Cosmic Hunt that spread far and wide in Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas among people who lived more than 15,000 years ago. Every version of the Cosmic Hunt shares a core storyline. A man or an animal pursues or kills one or more animals, and the creatures are changed into constellations. So what Dewey did was use phylogenetic software that's used for evolutionary tree building to analyze the extant versions of these myths and see how related they are. Now, to give you an idea how you do that, I'm going to go back to a podcast that we ran last December with Nick Matsky, an evolutionary biologist, who also used the phylogenetic software in an unusual and interesting way. He analyzed the relationships among some 60 bills in various state legislatures around the U.S. that uh, all deal with trying to disrupt the education of evolutionary theory in our public schools. So we have these 60 bills, which are clearly quite related to each other. Somebody writes a bill in one state, and maybe it uh, almost gets passed, so somebody in another state pretty much copies the bill and makes a few little changes to it. So what Matsky did was plug all these bills into his software that analyzes usually genetic sequences and established a relationship tree among all these bills. So I'll let him explain how he did that, and then I'll be back with more from Julien Dehuy. Um I went to Berkeley and got a PhD. I studied phylogenetics, which is the study of the phylogenies, phylogenies are the evolutionary trees, you know, showing the relationships of different species through common ancestry. Um, so I learned a lot about that and then went off to do a postdoc in Tennessee. Um, and in Tennessee, they have passed, they have ended up passing one of these bills in 2012. We had always talked about, you know, we're like these bills that look like they're just being copied and modified. You know, we should, we should do a phylogeny at some point, you know, do an evolutionary analysis of them. And it became clear this year that there were enough of these bills to uh, do a phylogeny. You know, they, so it gotten up to being about 60 bills so that we can show how these policies have evolved, how the anti-evolution policies have evolved through time. So I dropped everything back in July and August and uh, for about a month crashed through this analysis where I uh, uh, took all those bills, lined all, up all the texts, coded all the characteristics, all the variations between these texts, and then ran them through the standard phylogenetic analyses um, that we use for DNA. We use them for dinosaurs. They get used to study virus evolution. Those same programs can be used on texts that have been copied and modified. Um, so that, that's basically how this paper came about. So what did you actually uncover when you did this laborious text analysis? Ah, so there's a couple of main results that are sort of the technical results of this. Because, I mean, part of the point was, yeah, haha, creationism evolves, which is, you know, I think it's a useful point to make. Um, but there were some technical results, which is, you know, how strong is the signal of common ancestry when you have something with, you know, with animal species, we know they have common ancestry. That's been 
immensely well established. But if you have a collection of textual documents, you don't know starting out how much of that is due to copying and modification and how much of it is due to, you know, independent composition by different writers and things like that. And again, these are the uh, these are bills in various legislatures around the country. Yeah, exactly. So um, every legislative session in every state, which is either every year or every two years, um, there are, you know, hundreds of bills get proposed on all sorts of topics. And each one of those gets published. And these days they all go online um, when they're published. So the publication just means the bill has been introduced by somebody. Um, and so you have that text and it has a date on it. Um, so if you Google, you know, creationism legislation database, you'll see this database of all these bills that have been proposed and sometimes passed through the years. Um, so I took those and, uh, uh, yeah, you take those texts and you, yeah, you do this kind of exhaustive analysis where you line up all the, all the characteristics and, you know, say, does it have this word? Does it not have this word? Does it use this phrase? Does it not use this phrase? And those are just characteristics that when a text is copied, those characteristics get copied. Um, and on occasion, they get modified. And by tracing which bills share these variants, you can tell what the copying history is. So in his article, Dewey talks about the fact that Jung argued that these myths are uh, part of the collective unconscious. But Dewey says that the dissemination of cosmic hunt stories around the world can't be explained by such a universal psychic structure, because if that were the case, they'd be everywhere. But they're not everywhere. They're nearly absent in Indonesia and New Guinea. They're very rare in Australia, but they're present on both sides of the Bering Strait, which geologic and archaeological evidence indicates was above water between about 30,000 and 15,000 years ago. The most credible working hypothesis, therefore, is that Eurasian ancestors of the first Americans brought these myths with them over the Bering Strait. The fact that similar and complex myths could be recognized in Eurasia and America shows that evidence of shared ancestry could be found around 10,000 to 50,000 years ago. Because this myth could only spread with migrants from northeastern Asia when Beringia was above sea level. When Beringia was above sea level. So to calculate his tree, we used 47 versions of the cosmic hunt story and 93 myth themes within those stories. Following the biological model of a tree, showing the relationships among various biological species, actual trees showing the relationships among various versions of the same myth are among many traditions. By this way, I can test hypotheses about human prehistory and the processes explaining the current geographic distributions of the myths and folktales. One of the interesting things about this work is that we've always been able to look at fossils and try to establish evolutionary relationships there by comparing what was actually left in the ground. And now we can look at genetic sequences and try to establish relationships. But behaviors and ways of thinking are often lost because they don't leave concrete evidence. But because we can examine these ideas and folktales and myths 
and then map those using the same instruments that we use to map evolutionary history, we might actually be able to go back in time and get into the minds of our ancestors. And that's pretty interesting stuff. A careful use of the phylogenetic method gives us an opportunity to shed new light on the belief of our ancestors. For instance, on a very odd belief of a master of animals. I have one final point. In some of my databases, I have found a strange and strong signal just after the moment the humanity left Africa. He's found a strange and strong signal just after the moment that humanity left Africa. There could be many reasons for this. One of them is that it could be an artifact. Could just be some noise. But it could also be the sign of a cultural contact between Homo sapiens and a previous human species, maybe Neanderthalis. It's fun, isn't it? But it could also be the sign of a cultural contact between Homo sapiens and a previous human species, maybe Neanderthals. And then he finishes, and I agree, it's fun, isn't it? Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where in the December issue you can read the story about the evolution of myths by Julian Dewey. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.